was born in 1982 in New London, Connecticut. And my parents had a cute little house. And I grew up in that house. We never moved. We stayed in that house. We went, were in the same school system my whole childhood. And it was an adorable little house. It had a really nice yard, a huge like forest in the back area where we could, me and my brother, my little brother could explore. And we would ride our bikes up and down the long driveway and up and down the road. The road was so quiet. And of course it was a different time back then too, but the neighborhood was super safe and it was a really nice neighborhood. We would catch the bus on the corner of the street and it was just an adorable house, an adorable neighborhood. You know, from the outside, my childhood looked completely normal and it looked safe and it looked great, I guess. My parents were a part of a church before I was born. So I was born into this church. There were a lot of great things about it. It was a community. It was a very tight-knit community. And when I try to explain it to people, I use the term co-op because I feel like it's the best way to describe it. We were all very tight-knit to the point where if someone in the church needed someone else to help with cleaning their house or help with watching the children or rides to the airport or things like that, the adults in the church were so selfless with giving to each other. It was a non-denominational church, but really it was different than any other church I've ever known of. And I don't know that a lot of people know what happened really on the inside, but for me, all I have is my childhood perspective. I grew up in it, and so as a child, I witnessed and experienced things, and I now am wondering, what the heck was this? <laughs> it wasn't a normal church that you just come across every day. It was different, really different. I grew up in this church. We were a part of something where it was almost every single day of my life, and it was the most important thing in my life. It was the biggest priority for my family, for us to be in church, in services, in church services, in prayer meetings, in youth group. We had other things such as like fundraising functions or Christmas programs or, you know, whatever it is. They were very... um active, and you had to be a part of these things. You could not choose to not be a part of some of these things. You had to be there. Even if it was a youth group function where it's just the kids from the church hanging out, they really made it to where it was extremely important for you to be present at every single thing going on. If you were not present and fully committed, you would be a target for interrogation. As a kid, that was the environment that I was in, and it was a lot of pressure, and it was scary. It was pretty frightening. So I'll just tell you what it was like to be a child in the church, in the church services. 
you have to put on your Sunday best. You have to get all dressed up. I mean, I'm talking tights, hat, dress, fancy clothes, fancy shoes, you know, purse, everything, because you're going to meet with Jesus. So you have to look your ultimate best. And so we would get all dressed up to go to church on Sunday morning. And then when we were there, even as a tiny child, you had to sit in your chair and take notes, be actively listening, be engaged, be intensely responding to everything. I mean, to the point where maybe going forward for prayer or you are putting your hands in the air, you're singing, you might be speaking in tongues. There was just a lot of pressure even for the kids to just be extremely involved and be responding from what was happening in the church, the sermons and everything like that. And I just remember being so scared about what if I sit in the wrong seat? What if I don't sit up front? If I sit too far in the back, if I don't sit in the right spot in the church, if I don't do something right, I could be a target. If I fall asleep or look tired or yawn or roll my eyes or close my eyes or blink, there was just this intense amount of pressure because I did not want to be targeted and I did not want to be interrogated. You had to show up for everything. You couldn't miss a church service. If you miss a church service, there would be many phone calls following up to see where you are and that someone is concerned that you're in sin, that you have something to hide, that you're maybe hiding from Jesus because you know that you're bad. There was just a bunch of pressure to make sure not only that you're there in every single activity participating, but also really actively, intensely engaged. As a child, I just had this pressure of, I have to do everything correct in front of these people. You know, another thing was we were really isolated. I didn't really get a chance to know my extended family very well. I didn't get a chance to really see them very often. I didn't get a chance to really get to know them. And so I didn't really have a family like everyone else that I went to school with because I did go to public school. It kind of boggles my mind that we were allowed to go to public school, but I guess they probably thought that you could be in the world, but not of the world. Or, you know, maybe we were there to reach out to the people around us and try to save them. But there was definitely this isolation. We were not really encouraged to have any school friends. If we wanted a school friend, if we found a friend at school that we really liked, that we wanted to get close to, the only way that we could make that possible would be that we are either very actively trying to get them to come to the church and really get them saved, a.k.a. join the church, or we can't be friends with them. There was much more encouragement that we can spend as much time as we want with the friends within the church, but if they're outside people, then they are not on the right path. They are not right with Jesus. Jesus is not very happy with those people, and we cannot really be associated with those people unless we are actively trying to reach out to them to save them. When I was in school as just a little kid— I didn't feel like every other kid. I wasn't really going to all the birthday parties with all the other kids. I wasn't really participating with all the other kids in school activities, such as sleepover school, um, trip school, classroom, movie. There were certain things that we had to ask permission to be a part of these things. Basically, what would happen is Cyro, 
or the leadership in the church, they would have to make these decisions on whether and what things I was able to participate in or not. A lot of times, it would be a situation where I really wanted to be a part of a school dance, or I really wanted to be a part of this or that. And I would have to wait for permission. Everyone else in the class submitted their permission slips. Well, me, I had to wait for weeks and weeks to just hear an answer back on whether or not Jesus wanted me to go or not. Sometimes I believe that those decisions would probably come from Syro, who was the prophet of the church. Yes, there was a prophet at the head of the church. She was in her 70s, and she lived in England, and she helped each family and each member make important decisions in their lives. We were really encouraged to be an open book and to share everything going on in our lives, every single thing going on in our lives. Um, And that was like a big thing. There was really no privacy, and there really wasn't many boundaries. I felt that if I ever, you know, told my mom something, she would probably tell all of her friends so that they could all pray for me or they could all be a part of it. And it was just this thing where I never felt very private. I never felt really safe. And I definitely always felt like someone else was making decisions for me. And a lot of times they were decisions that I really were heartbroken about. You cannot go on this trip. You cannot go to this play. You cannot go watch this classroom movie. You cannot go to these dances because Jesus does not want you to. And there were several reasons why Jesus may not want me to. One of the reasons maybe was Jesus thought that I was in sin, and he was saying through the leadership or through Syro the prophet that I was too proud or too arrogant. That was like a very common thing in the church or too selfish. Those things were very common. And so that would happen to me even as a child. They would come back and say, you're not worthy to go to these things. You're not worthy to, be, to participate in these things like all your other friends in the class. And I don't know if the teachers ever caught on to that, to what was happening. When I was at home, I was scared because I thought my mom was probably going to get a call from one of the leaders, come in at any given moment and punish me and interrogate me for things that I didn't do. I can just picture myself sitting there on the floor playing quietly to myself because I really did try to keep myself under the radar as much as I could, be as innocent as I could, not be a target. But it just wasn't enough. And I did get punished and disciplined often for things I believe I did not do. They were spiritual things. They weren't tangible things. So I was being punished for pride a lot. I mean, if I was excited about something and I felt like I I guess I showed too much self-esteem And my mom would come in. She would punish me. There was a lot of spanking. And I was really afraid. There was no way to argue it. There was no way to plead your innocence. If you did that, you were in worse, worse, worse trouble and going to be in worse, worse, worse punishment. And I learned that very early on as a child. And so it was better to just admit whatever you're being accused of from adults in the church, from your parents, from the leadership, from this prophet. Whatever you are being accused of, just admit it and start the repentance process, which means probably groveling, which means probably, you know, losing a lot of things you care about, you know, losing the opportunity to do something you really wanted to do. 
I'm just going to tell you one of the things that did happen to me that I do remember. I remember being in the back seat of a car when I was a very little girl. I don't know exactly what age I was. And one of the leaders of the church, one of the ministers, drove me around the neighborhood. And he forced me to confess to having lust, lust in my heart. I did not know what that word meant, and I did not know what it was. And I had no choice. I felt so alone and so terrified, but I just admitted to it. And, you know, looking back, I just think, what a sick thing to do to a little kid to make them admit to lust. But that was something that was just like a common occurrence in this church. From kid to adult, these leaders and this prophet would accuse people in the church of having lust for each other, or this person's having lust for that person, and this person wants to commit adultery with that person. I mean, it was like this ongoing drama. It was craziness to the point where it split up families, it split up marriages, It's hard. I try to figure out, did they enjoy this or did they truly, truly believe this or did they get off on this? I really, I really don't know. When I was a junior in high school, I decided to get baptized. At the time, I thought that I was baptizing and committing myself to Jesus. Looking back, it's really disturbing because I feel like I actually baptized myself and committed myself to the church. At first, the church was really rewarding me for being baptized. And that's that's one of the weird things in the church is they would they would reward you and they would lift you up and then they would, you know, turn around and push you down and pull the the rug right out from underneath you. Like, oh, you think you were doing great with God? Well, guess what? You're not. God is not happy with you. God, he doesn't like you. He loves you, but he doesn't like you. The leader spoke with such authority that you really did believe them. And I remember when they used to come down the stairs in the church, they'd come down this this spiral, it's kind of like a spiral staircase, a really steep staircase down these stairs on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and just during the church services. They would come in and it was almost like a wedding ceremony where the bride comes down. It's just like, ooh, ah, everybody is so in reverence and in awe of these people. They just were on a different level because they were closer to God because they were chosen for this position and they got raised up for this position. And they really had a lot of authority within this church. They were messengers and they were carrying out orders and messages from the prophet of the church. Her nickname was Syro. That's what I knew her as. And I think the church denied calling her a prophet, but ever since I was a little girl, I knew of her as the prophet. She had direct access to Jesus. Jesus spoke directly to her. And she could tell everyone, you know, in the church what their sins were and if they were in sin and if Jesus was happy with them or if Jesus was not happy with them. And everyone believed this in this community and everyone really had a lot of reverence and fear. And they they thought it was this healthy fear that they had for her and for the messages that she would bring directly from Jesus. So we all believed that. For me, I didn't have a choice. I believed that growing up because I was born into this. 
my junior year of high school, okay, I was baptized. I thought everybody was kind of happy with me. And I was offered a trip to go to England. So there was a sister church in England, and there were just two churches, one in Connecticut and one in England. And people would travel back and forth, and it was kind of this exciting thing. You know, you might get some letters from some friends in England, and we all were friends. You know, it was kind of, like I said, a sister church, and people would come visit from England, and they would stay in our homes. And then we would go to England, stay in other people's homes, and get to know the families within the two churches. So it was very much one church, but it was just one was in Connecticut, one was in England. But we tried to see these people when they came to visit. We tried to get letters from them. We would all be pen pals. And a part of it was really kind of fun. But the problem was some of these trips, now I'm kind of finding out, were just really more like strategic, maybe even brainwashing. Now I'm finding out that there was even potentially manual labor going on. So I'm trying to find out a little bit more about behind the scenes, like what is going on with this whole thing with the trips back and forth to England. And there were lots of weddings. So people would go to England for the weddings or they'd come to the U.S. for the weddings. But basically, I was promised a trip after I got baptized. So what happened was one of the leaders came to me and said, Jesus is very happy with you. And he wants to invite you to England for Christmas. And it was actually November at the time, so it was a really short notice. But for the Christmas break, Jesus wants to invite you to England to have a real British Christmas and really have that experience of being away from your parents and being able to have this really nice vacation. And I was ecstatic. I mean, just imagine a junior in high school. I could get away from my little brother. (laughs) I could get away from my parents. I could really experience a British Christmas. I always wanted to travel. It was just a dream come true for me. And I was so, so, so excited. So I get there and I was staying with this couple in the church. And I absolutely adored this couple. They had just gotten married. They were newlyweds. And I was so excited about being a part of this Christmas in England and staying at their house and staying in their guest bedroom. I was so stoked. But shortly after I arrived, I received the call. It is an infamous call, the infamous call. The person I was staying with said, it was the wife, the newlywed wife, so she was a young lady. She said to me, you have a phone call. I didn't think anything of it. I walked to the other room to receive the phone call, and she didn't hand me the phone. She held on to the phone, and she said, Cyro is on the phone, and Cyro has a message for you. And she proceeded to tell me that Cyro's message for me was that I was in deep, deep sin. And I was behaving so badly. I was so out of control in my heart. I had ruined everyone's Christmas in England. And they couldn't touch me. They didn't know what to do with me. They couldn't deal with me because I was in such horrible state in my heart. I was in such deep, deep, dark sin. And I really, really needed to repent. And to be honest with you, I don't even know what in the world I was being accused of or what they think that I did. I rack my brain about it still to this day. I have nightmares about it. I have no idea. I know that I took a little nap and I probably think 
that that upset people, maybe, because I'm sure I had jet lag. But I was a teenager, you know, so I'm going to say maybe I had a, a little bit of an attitude. I don't know, but I was so excited to be there. And I was just on cloud nine. So this really, really was absolutely devastating news because I was there, I mean, let's just say 15, 16 years old. I'm just going to say I was 15 years old, probably. Devastating news. I'm there in a country by myself and I'm being told this. And so then Cyro proceeded to tell me through this girl on the phone that I couldn't leave. I wasn't able to leave England until I repented. Not only that, but I was being moved out of that home. Because basically, I didn't deserve to be in that home anymore. And I had already ruined this couple's first Christmas. And I am going to have to be moved to a different home within the church. And also, my mother and my little brother have already been sent to England to come deal with me. That was just absolutely devastating because, number one, I did not want my mom to come and my little brother. So then... I stayed in England, and I don't know for how long I stayed there. I do not know. I mean, I pretty much, my memory has pretty much blanked out. I know I stayed there through Christmas. I know that we stayed there past my um, play auditions, and I was really into being in plays at the time, and that was very, at the time, traumatic for me, that I missed play auditions and couldn't be in the play that year. and to see all my school friends be able to participate, and I wasn't able to. That was rough. But I tried to just lay low, do whatever they tell me to do, keep my head down until I could leave. I was absolutely held there against my will. I did not want to be there. I tried to several times escape in the middle of the night and make a phone call and call one of my school friends. And I remember specifically this one time I called her. I told her, you know, get me out of here. Help me. And she said, don't call me anymore because my parents are scared. My family is scared. Don't call me anymore. She remembers that still to this day. So I was very much in a state of terror while I was there and just had no idea when I was ever going to come home. And what's so funny is that before I went to England, I was so stoked about this trip and I probably was bragging about it to my school friends and several of them told me, we're never going to see you again. If you go to England, we're never going to see you again. And I just thought that was funny and I just was like, what the heck are they talking about? Anyway, so before we left to go back to the United States, I got a phone call, another phone call from Cyro. And again, she didn't speak to me directly, which I thought was really strange. Someone was on the phone again and told me that she said that she sees that I have repented and that I'm able to finally go home to the U.S. She said, better late than never. I've always remembered that because I kind of was like, whatever. I really literally was thinking in my heart, whatever, because I just didn't. I was starting to not believe this crap anymore. And I was starting to pretty much live my life like a spy. I mean, just, I had to stay in it. I didn't have a choice. Because what would happen is, is if you left the church, anybody who leaves the church, even if they move away, they would be demonized and shunned. Absolutely shunned. You cannot speak to that person. Even if one of your kids leaves the church, or your husband leaves the church, or somebody 
that you know leaves the church, you cannot speak to them anymore because they are not right with God. They are in sin. God is not happy with them and they are not on the right path. And you just cannot be associated with them. So before we left to go back to the United States, it was my brother, me, and my mom. My mom sat me and my brother down before we left to go back to the U.S. And she said, things are going to be very different when we get back. Your father is no longer following Jesus. He's not on the right path. And he has walked away from the Lord. And I knew right then and there what that had meant was that I would probably have to not talk to my dad anymore. But even more than that, my mom said that they're getting a divorce. So she decided to divorce my dad while she was in England. And she said we would not be going back to the home that I grew up in. But instead, we would be moving in with a family from the church. And so that's what happened. We got back to the U.S. and we moved directly in with a family in the church. And I shared a room with my mom, my junior and senior year of high school. And that was rough. And also, I didn't talk to my dad for years and years after that. I didn't have a choice. And I did not ever see my house that I grew up in ever again. I never saw the inside of it. I never saw my room again. I never got to say goodbye to my things, to my cat, to my dad. I mean, it very much felt like almost, I guess the best way I could describe it is maybe like there was a house fire and I lost everything, my cat and my dad. I lost everything. It was absolutely devastating. And I'm sure I got a box of my possessions, but I didn't get to pick them out. And I I didn't get to say goodbye to my house. And I didn't get to pick the items out that I wanted. And it was just all lost. It was all lost. And even to this day, I mean, it's just, I have nightmares. I think that's one of the worst things that I deal with now is just all of the nightmares of being in England, the nightmares about being in my old house, listening through the door, trying to hear what was going on because leadership would come over and give my parents discipline sessions and interrogate and discipline my dad a lot. I feel like he was really a target. And my parents were probably a target because we didn't live within walking distance. I mean, pretty much everyone in the community were very much encouraged to live within walking distance in Jewett City. And we didn't live within walking distance. We probably were like 20 minutes away from the downtown Jewett City area. So they were probably targeted a lot for interrogation and discipline sessions. And my brother and I used to listen through my bedroom door and try to, you know, even to this day, I have great hearing because I would strain my ears. I spent so much of my childhood straining my ears, trying to hear what was going on in the living room. It was just a very, very interesting place. And I finally got out of it, thank goodness. I got out of it because I was living like a spy for a while. I was living like I was, I had one foot out the door. I was trying to figure out how I could escape. And I did run away several times, but I was too afraid. I'm pretty sure my mom probably called my friends and threatened them or said something to them to the effect that scared me to make me come back. But I knew that I had to get out. I knew that I had to get out. My heart was not in it. I didn't believe what was going on anymore. I felt like it was wrong. I felt like if God is real, there's no way that he hates everyone. 
There's no way that this is love or this is kindness. There's just no way. One of the things that was really, really hard for me was that hobbies such as, you know, I just happened to naturally be a person that was into the arts, like art, music, theater, writing, you know, that kind of thing. If I wanted to do those things as a career, that was absolutely impossible within this community. This community was pretty much like you stay here, you get a job, you you sacrifice yourself, and you are of service, you become a servant to the church. And they very much always talked about being a servant and having the heart of a servant. And I mean, a part of that I think is is really nice, but then a part of it is really twisted and unhealthy because we were not able to have our own dreams. And there was no way that I was ever going to tell my parents or anyone within the church of my dreams. Um, And I always wanted to do something creative. That was just who I was. And they did not accept that. Not not only did they not accept that, but I absolutely did not feel even safe to share that. So there, even though I might have been involved with some of the plays, because I loved acting class and, and theater and all those kind of things, or, or singing, and I might have been able to be involved to a certain extent, but I could not share my enthusiasm. I could not be excited too much about it because the church comes first and the activities and your being a servant to Jesus comes first. And if you have a dream that's bigger than this community, then you are in serious danger of getting in trouble. So I had to keep that on a lockdown and absolutely keep my lips zipped and not share that information with anybody. So that was really difficult for me. And anytime that I got too excited or enthusiastic about something that I was involved with, something creative, which looking back, I'm just like, why wouldn't someone support that creativity? Because that really kept me out of trouble. I never, you know, did drugs or never even dated anyone in high school or anything. I didn't even care about boys. All I really truly cared about was doing creative stuff, but that wasn't even supported. And thank God for some of the teachers that I had because they really did help shield me from some of the devastation and the fear and the torment that I was going through. They really did help shield that by keeping me busy, keeping me working hard on projects and things like that, and giving me some of that support that I was really longing for. But at home, I did not get that. I was just always in trouble for something. And I was a good kid. I was trying to be as innocent as I could and lay low. Um, But anyway, so the way that I got out, the way that I escaped was I finally got out by applying for college behind my mom's back. And I applied to college when I turned 18. College was really not a thing that they encouraged in the church. Definitely, if you were going to go to college, you had to commute. And you had to still be involved and participate in every single church function, church service. You still had to be there every day, and you still had to put the church first. But I decided that was the way I was going to get out. So I waited till I was 18 so that I didn't have to get my mother's permission. And I applied to college behind my mom's back, and I got accepted. And I will never forget when I received that acceptance letter in the mail, it was just, I was scared, absolutely scared, because I knew what was about to happen. I knew I was about to lose everyone, and I knew I was about to be shunned by escaping, by leaving. But I also could see a light at the end of the tunnel, and the freedom was awaiting me. 
So I told my mom, I waited to the very last minute that I could. And I told my mom, I got accepted to college and I'm leaving. And she very much was disappointed and very much was probably devastated for me. There were people in the church that did try to stop me from going. They tried to give me an intervention uh, at my workplace. I had a job at a little, I guess, a retail store for women's clothes. And a lot of the people my age from the church worked there. Like They did try to stop me and they told me, you're walking away from Jesus, from the right thing. And there was just nothing that was going to stop me. And I remember one day I came home from work probably, and there was a, a leader in the sitting there in the corner of my dining room, and he was holding a big black umbrella. And he told me, if I leave, if I go to college, then I'm no longer under the umbrella of protection. And if the wolves come for the sheep, then the shepherd cannot protect them anymore. And that really terrified me. I felt like it was a personal threat at the time, and I was honestly afraid for my life. But at that moment, I just kind of smiled and was just kind of like, cool, thanks. But it definitely absolutely scared me to my core. I was afraid for my life. And I was convinced that they were going to come and try to harm me or kill me or something. I really did, which I, I look back and I think that was probably kind of silly. Like, I don't think they actually were going to physically harm me, but that's the level of fear that was there. That's the level of fear that was in that environment that I was afraid for my life when I left. And so I went to college. I had a big old garbage bag full of my stuff that I packed by myself and I drove to college. I got there, I got to my dorm And when I got there, I was the only person there without a family. I mean, everyone around me was being moved in by family members. And I just remember watching like all of these moms help set up and decorate with the kids. There were lots of tears shed, like happy tears, bittersweet tears. But I was there completely by myself. And I remember calling my mom when I got there and her just basically cutting ties with me, saying that she was really disappointed in the path that I decided to take. So I didn't talk to her for a long time after that. I had to start my life completely over at age 18 with nobody. One of the reasons why I've started this podcast and why I'm working on this creative project is because I want to learn more about this group that I was a part of. I feel like being a part of this has been helping me be able to process, to heal a little bit from some of the traumas. And everyone in this group had a different experience. And I'm really eager to listen to everyone else's experiences because I want to see how it can relate to me. I I want to see how it can actually help me heal in my journey and it can help others heal in their journey. Thank you for listening to Colton, Connecticut, as I explore, investigate, and learn more about the religious group I grew up in, located in Norwich, Connecticut, and Mansfield Woodhouse, England, formerly known as Dayspring, King's Chapel, Bethel, Peniel, and the International Church.